Hello, and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen, a college student and co-founder of the Oberlin Policy Research Institute, an undergraduate public policy research organization based at Oberlin College. My guest today is Eric Cadiz, Thomas Jefferson Professor of Law and Cable Research Professor of Law at William & Mary Law School. We will discuss his article, Of Picardy and Perpetuities, Dynastic Wealth in the 21st Century and Beyond, published in the Boston College Law Review. Welcome, Professor Kaidas. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Luce. Um, I appreciate it. So let's go over how you got interested in this paper and what the basic crux of your argument is. Yeah, I, I have a longer research agenda on the, the phenomenon that by now everyone knows about sort of growing inequality in America. I'm writing a book called The New Feudalism. And so it came out of that. And part of what is very futile about increasing inequality is changes in the law of inheritance that I discuss in this paper. And so that was sort of the motivation was studying our inheritance laws changed in ways that look, in some sense, backwards, that looks futile, that looks like we're going back to a world where inherited wealth uh, sort of control things. And, of course, Thomas Piketty, in his famous book, uh, addressed this topic uh, in depth. And so those two things sort of came together, and that's where the paper comes from. So let's talk about Piketty for a second. Uh, the basic crux of Piketty's argument is that the return on capital is going to outpace the growth of the national income. R is greater than G. Can you talk about uh, what that means and what the historical basis for that is? Yeah, first, the historical basis, uh, uh, Piketty did uh, extensive historical research. And, and so perhaps the most surprising thing about his book, at least for me, was the fact that the rate of return on capital um, is amazingly constant over time, at about 4 or 5% in real terms. Uh, national income usually doesn't grow that fast, and he says this explains why in most human periods and most times, inherited wealth was very important because you would leave a bunch of wealth to your kids and it grows at 4 or 5%, and the rest of the economy and people's income is only growing at 1, 2, or 3%, and inherited wealth, in some sense, and use his famous phrase, uh, eats the future. Uh, there was a temporary hiatus in that R greater than G during the 19th, the 1900s, during the 20th century, due to the Great Depression and the two world wars had major negative impacts on capital. And we had sort of a great age of egalitarianism. And he says it's over. <laughs> uh, we're returning to the history of society, which the usual history which is that inherited wealth is more important than uh, earned income, labor income. Uh, and so that's where R versus G comes from, is that uh, when I was growing up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where it was unusual. Uh, the 20th century exception where G was equal to or greater than R, and inherited wealth wasn't a big deal, but now R is back to being greater than G, and uh, we face a future where those who inherit lots of wealth will increase their advantage over the rest of society, uh, sort of with every generation. So to the second part of your paper, which is, the, which is uh, you know, of the title of Piketty and Perpetuities, can you dive into what the rule of perpetuities is? Rule against perpetuities? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, torture for all involved. Law students for, for, uh, for at least a century have been tortured by it. Well, the rule against perpetuities is a sort of a famous victory of public-minded judges in England over uh, the aristocracy, the landed aristocracy in England wanted to sort of lock in wealth in families forever. 
And the rule against perpetuities, which is sort of complicated in its details, but in its major contours, basically said, no, you cannot lock it into the family. Each son has the chance to blow it. Each son does not have to leave it to his sons and that person to his grandsons and great-grandsons and so on. Each generation has full ownership and does not have to leave the whole estate to the family. And so the rule against perpetuities meant that families could not lock up wealth. You could have profligate sons who could sell the family estate to gamble or to enter business or do anything else they please. They could divide it among their children. And so it was no longer one big family estate, but seven uh, smaller family estates and then 14 smaller family estates the next generation. And so the rule against perpetuities for centuries, I think since the 15 or 1600s, maybe the 1700s, basically said when you write a will, you cannot create any sort of trust or any sort of legal setup that sort of locks in family wealth and says, my children and all my succeeding generations shall keep this pool of wealth for the benefit of my bloodline. And for obscure reasons that have to do with banks wanting to lure trust business away from other states, uh, state legislatures, virtually in every state at this point, have abolished or diluted the rule against perpetuities uh, to the point where it doesn't exist. Somebody who is, wants to create a family dynasty, something that has been impossible essentially for the entire history of the United States of America, can now do that. The rule against perpetuities is gone for anyone with a decent estate lawyer. And anyone who wants to set up, you know, the if I wanted to, if I had a lot of wealth and I wanted to set up the Cadis family estate, I could do it. I could set up uh, a trust which would live forever and would prevent any of my children or succeeding generations from dipping into the assets of the trust and it would just shoot up income to them. It could create all sorts of incentives for them to put more money in the trust, to be frugal. Uh, it's, that's what I mean when I talk about a new feudalism is we're sort of returning to an age where it's quite possible to insulate family wealth from any sort of social change. So this kind of echoes another kind of decline of a policy tool, uh, the estate tax. Can you talk a little bit about that particular policy tool's decline? Yeah, the estate tax uh, to me is, is almost, almost as shocking as the disappearance of the rule against perpetuities. Uh, it was adopted in the early, eight, early years uh, after the federal income tax was adopted, first in, the, in 1914, I think. It was never controversial. It was always thought to be a very American thing that inherited wealth uh, was, was, was not something sacrosanct. Indeed, that was a pretty prime target for taxation. Andrew Carnegie wrote a famous essay, basically said it's, it's immoral to leave great sums to your children. Uh, and so the American ethic was totally in support of an estate tax. Uh, the rate of the estate tax, at least the highest marginal rate at times, has been as high as 90%. Uh, even in its modern incarnation, it's been 70, 60, 50 percent in that range. And it was never controversial until in the early 1990s. And this is well documented in a book by um, Michael Gretz, a, a tax professor. Uh, a very small group of very wealthy families launched a very well-funded campaign against the estate tax. And it has a bizarre recent history. It was totally eliminated in the year 2010 in a phase out by the Bush administration, but they, it had a pop back the next year in 2011 for some obscure Senate rules about budget balance issues. But the thought was after they passed the initial bill, it would die, that they would totally kill it off in 2011, but they didn't. 
So it did die in 2010. It came back in 2011. Uh, after Trump was elected, uh, it survived in the Senate by exactly one vote. Susan Collins of Maine uh, basically was the Republican who prevented the abolition of the estate tax, but it's hanging on by a thread. And uh, there's very good chance that at the next election or an election after that or in the near future, the estate tax will be gone. And what that will mean is someone who wants to leave $10 billion in a dynastic trust to their descendants forevermore can now do it without paying any sort of tax. And that makes passing on dynastic wealth much easier. Currently, the marginal rate, I think the top marginal rate is 40 or 50 percent. You know, that doesn't totally disable dynastic trusts, but it certainly takes a big bite out of the power to leave inherited wealth to your future generations. Uh, And there's a very good chance uh, that it, along with the rule against perpetuities, is going to disappear. And when both are gone, there will be absolutely nothing standing in the way of the creation of sort of this feudal dynastic wealth. So can you dive in a little bit on the causes of the growth of feudal dynastic wealth? Yeah, it's a couple of ingredients. I don't think any of them are huge mysteries. Uh, it all starts with greater income inequality. There's been a, just an amazing increase in income inequality. And so that's a very well-studied uh, and popular topic in economics today. And when you make billions of dollars, you know, it's pretty hard to spend it all. I mean, you can only buy so many yachts and eat so much caviar and drink so much champagne. And so you end up saving it and saved income becomes wealth. And so we're having sort of a lagged increase in wealth inequality as income inequality increases. And then eventually the people who are earning that wealth, you know, the hedge fund managers, the CEOs, the athletes, the musicians who earn uh, the gargantuan salaries that now make up the top 1% and the top 0.1% are are leaving it. And they can leave it, and some do leave it to charities, and some spread the wealth around to many people. But uh, there is a growing industry of dynastic trust lawyers who are setting up dynastic trust for these people. And so uh, the, sort of the causal chain is increased income inequality leads to increasing wealth inequality. Increasing wealth inequality leads to huge estates of the top 0.1% when they die. And uh, it seems like, although the data is hard to gather, this is all done privately, but it does seem like there's a growing industry in the creation of dynastic trusts. And so I guess the final piece is uh, biologically, people are programmed to uh, help their bloodlines succeed in the future. And a clear way to do that is to set up a dynastic trust for the benefit of all your Uh, progeny. And so those are sort of the ingredients which are leading to this sort of mushrooming growth in dynastic trusts now and in the coming decades. So traditionally, what were the policy justifications against the growth of these dynastic trusts? Well, yeah, the history of the, especially the rule against perpetuities was that it would lead land. And that was really the only form of wealth that mattered uh, in feudal England. Uh, the the worry was that land would end up in the hands of um, incompetent heirs who, who wouldn't know how to manage it. There should be free commerce in the land. Um, that became less of an issue because in modern times, assets are not in sort of fixed things. A large trust usually has stocks and bonds and other sort of liquid marketable assets. And so that's sort of one of the traditional reasons for the rule against perpetuities. And people have pointed out that that doesn't make much sense anymore. 
Uh, in my view, though, the, the most important reason for the rule against perpetuities was and still remains uh, the prevention of a feudal-like society where there's a small class of people who own disproportionate ratios, disproportionate fractions of social wealth, and are advantaged in all sorts of ways. It warps job markets, it warps product markets, and maybe worst of all, it warps political markets. That's just a truism. Um, the golden rule, uh, he who has the gold rules, and the rule against perpetuities, you know, stood in the way of dynastic wealth, um, no longer does. And so if we don't like dynastic wealth, if we think feudalism is a bad thing, we want something that performs the same sort of function that the rule against perpetuities did. So let's go into something that would perform that uh, function that the rule against perpetuities did. You suggest in your paper taxes on perpetuities. Can you dive into uh, what that is? Yeah, the rule against perpetuities basically said you just cannot do this. You cannot set up a trust that locks wealth within your family forever and ever. Um, that's sort of a blunt-edged tool. And so my proposal for a tax against perpetuities is sort of part and parcel of a sort of preference among economists not to say you can or can't do things that may be uh, antisocial in certain ways, but you can do them if you're willing to pay the freight. And so the classic sort of tax in this nature is a tax on pollution. And, and, and so we've all heard of a carbon tax, which says let's not ban the use of uh, carbon fuels, but rather we should impose a tax so those who pollute pay enough money to the public fisc so the public can afford services to clean up the environment. And so it's generally thought that those sort of taxes on negative externalities are a first best way to deal with uh, antisocial behaviors to say, if you want to behave badly and you're willing to pay the way, uh, uh, you can do it. And so the tax against perpetuities is, is motivated by that sort of uh, insight. And so you could set up these dynastic trusts. But between the estate tax, which, you know, I think should be higher than the current top marginal rate, and the tax against perpetuities, it would be largely self-defeating. The, the combination of the estate tax and the tax on perpetuities would take such a big bite out of your dynastic state, uh, estate that the hope would be you just decide not to do it. And for those few people who have a real burn to do it, uh, they would pay a high tax, and you can use the high tax revenue from the few people who might want to create dynastic trusts to fight some of the evils of such trusts. You know, funding education for the poor, funding a stake, give people who reach the age of 18 $50,000 so that they can start a business or fund their own education. But you can use the tax revenue from the tax on perpetuities to basically create a more egalitarian society as a counterweight to any dynastic trusts that are being created. So you refer to the rule against perpetuities as kind of a blunt edge policy instrument. Why wouldn't the reestablishment of the rule against perpetuities really uh, be the best tool to solve this dynastic wealth problem? Yeah, and I, uh, let me start off by saying, I, if that it was a choice between a return to the rule against perpetuities or nothing, I would definitely take a return to the role against perpetuities. It's better than nothing. It's better than where we are right now. Uh, but again, I, I'm convinced by the sort of logic of, of the modern economic study of 
behavior that has negative externalities, be it pollution or the creation of dynastic trusts, that probably a better way than regulating and a, a better way that, and we could just ban carbon fuels and, you know, sort of have this large effect on our way of life and it wouldn't raise any revenues. Uh, I'm a fan of a carbon tax. I think that probably is the way to deal with the global warming and the other negative external effects that burning um, fossil fuels has. And I sort of, by analogy, make the same arguments for perpetuities is that, well, they're, they're bad and they should be discouraged. But, you know, if someone wants to do it bad enough and if they are willing to pay the price uh, for their antisocial behavior, then I would let them do it uh, and collect the money and put the money to productive ends. So you note within your paper that there is a uh, there's a tendency for generations to inherit wealth that within two, three, four generations that uh, all the wealth basically is spent up by non-prudent heirs. Why can't we rely on this to you know prevent a new feudal uh, society. Yeah, and so that's a that's a very good question, and it sort of goes to um, the legal entity called a trust. And so, without a trust, that would work. If 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 X leaves all her money to her daughter Y, and it's not in a trust, it's true. Y can dissipate it in the first generation, or Y's daughters can dissipate it in the second generation, or the granddaughters in the third generation. But if Y chooses to put it in a trust, Y can write the terms of the trust almost any way that she wants. And so in the trust, she can say, and by the way, these are fairly common. They're called spendthrift provisions in a trust. Uh, my, my daughter, uh, Y, and her children and all of my succeeding generations of descendants can never, ever touch the principal. The stocks will always stay there. They get the dividends. The bonds will always stay there. They only get the interest. The patents will stay there. They only get the royalties. But by writing a trust in a dynastic way, you can prevent your heirs from dissipating wealth. It is legally impossible for them to say, I want to sell the stocks and the bonds and everything else in there and get a big pile of money and go gamble it away or have parties or buy yachts. Uh, all they are entitled to is the income from the trust. And they can write the trust in a way such that they're only entitled to a small fraction of the income so that the trust is actually growing over time. And so it's a, it's a great question to sort of illustrate why this tool of a trust. And it's, it's a, to non-lawyers, it's sort of strange, this idea that people who are not flesh and blood can be legal entities. But a trust is a legal entity. It can hold property in its own name, like a corporation. And it has a separate legal existence from the person who created it or the beneficiaries. And American law gives the donor, the person who created the trust, almost unlimited power to put any terms that she wants to in the trust. And so the whole point of a dynastic trust, the whole point of using a legal entity called a trust is to write terms that will absolutely and completely and forever prevent any of your descendants from dissipating wealth in the way that descendants typically do. So this kind of sounds like dead hand control, which was one of the reasons why a common law of rule against perpetuities was promulgated in 
the 1500s. What's the particular negatives of that? The ne- well, the negatives of dead hand control, uh, initially, I think the, we, we touched on this before. I think the concern of uh, judges in 15th and 16th century and 17th century England was the property might be put to very inefficient uses. So it would be possible to write a will in the 15th century, which said this property shall be used as a church forevermore. And so there might be a beautiful church on the property, but it might be that the city around the church sort of fades. It's it, it, For whatever reasons, it's not a growing city. It's sort of a dying city. And the cities 40 miles north and 70 miles east are growing. And so it doesn't make sense to use this nice plot of land or this particular building, perhaps for a church anymore. No one goes. No one lives close to it. But you've got this document from 100, 200, 500 years ago, creating this trust, which said it shall forevermore be used as a church. And so this, the medieval judges were worried about sort of this never-ending power of someone who dies from beyond the grave, dead hand control, to dictate the uses of property in ways that might not make sense uh, many generations after the gift was made. So within your paper, you talk about uh, tax, going back to the taxing perpetuities, you talk about taxing dynastic trust savings in excess of the golden rule level of approximately 15%. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, some of the economics here is obscure, uh, and but there's a very interesting, and I think there's some intuition to this, um, but there is some notion uh, that at some point savings uh, to invest in capital can be overdone. You know, you you have one machine per worker and that first machine makes every worker very, uh, it's a large increment in in her or his marginal productivity. Second machine, less so, but still gives you a a decent bang for your buck. By the time you get to the eighth, the ninth, the 15th, the 20th machine, doesn't add much. So this is sort of a declining marginal utility or declining marginal productivity of capital idea. And so the idea is, you know, the savings rate at some point, saving to invest in more capital doesn't help you. You end up with a lot of machines which are essentially useless, and that comes at a cost. That's foregone consumption. Instead of building those machines, you would have wish you would have baked more bread and built more houses uh, and done other forms of consumption. And so it's not easy to calculate, but the best estimates we have are that the golden rate, this is the, the rate at which savings starts to become unproductive, actually decreases consumption generation after generation is about 15%. And we really don't want to encourage people to save at a greater rate than that. Now, someone setting up a dynastic trust might say, well, I want to set a very high savings rate. In in the paper, I talk about savings rates that you might want to have higher than 90% of the trust income. The creator of the trust might want to dictate be saved. Well, if there's lots, I mean, with the wealth inequality that we have, uh, it's possible there's a lot of uh, people who die in the coming decades with huge fortunes who set up dynastic trust. A very significant percent of, of American wealth could be in dynastic trust, and the savings rates could be 90%. That could push the overall savings rate of the economy above the golden rule rate, and it will reduce everyone's consumption. We'll just be building too many machines, looking for too many investment opportunities. And so that is a natural level at which to start taxing 
uh, and now trust incomes. It will, will let you save for your future generations up to the golden rate. But after that, we're going to impose a heavy tax on the income in the trust and essentially divert it to more productive uses. It's not going to help us have a more productive society past the golden rule rate. And so it's better that we tax it away and spend it on infrastructure or redistribute it to people who can't afford housing, food, or an education. And so that's where the golden rule savings rate sort of ties into the dynastic trust issue. So speaking about, you know, economics that are not particularly intuitive, you know, there's a common phrase that, you know, isn't more capital better? Isn't the investments made by these trusts going into the economy? Can you talk a little bit about that and what the Keynesian uh, paradox of uh, thrift is? Yeah, and I, I think the first part of your question, I think, um, sort of feeds back into the golden rule rate. And just, uh, we certainly, and I think I talk in the paper about Aesop's fables and the grasshopper who saves, or the grasshopper who doesn't save and the ant who does. I can't remember which way the, the fable goes. But uh, again, many cultures have these stories. And we all tend to think more savings is always better. But the, the sort of economic theory of the golden rule says that ignores the diminishing marginal productivity of capital. And no, at some point, more savings for more investment is not better. It leaves you with too many machines sitting around, too much capital sitting around that just doesn't do much for you because you have too much capital in relation to the amount of labor uh, that you have. The paradox of thrift is yet another sort of uh, unintuitive um, economic phenomenon. It's the golden rule is sort of a very long run phenomenon over you know years or decades. The paradox of thrift says an increase in savings in the short run can be very destructive to the economy. The mechanism is very different. And, and it, it sort of, it was invented by Keynes. It went out of favor in the 70s and 80s, but it's after the late, uh, after the Great Recession of 2007, it, I think it's made a comeback in a big way. But the idea is uh, the sort of classic paradox of thrift occurs when a recession starts, everyone gets nervous. And when everyone gets nervous, everyone wants to have cash. And when everyone wants to have cash, everyone is basically burying uh, a big part of their paycheck in their mattress. There's this huge rush to have cash or things that look a lot like cash, like short-term government bonds. Well, when everyone does that, that's money that's flowing, flowing sort of out of the economy. It's just sitting in bank accounts. It's not going into investment. And so in some ways, it's the flip side. Uh, too much savings in the golden rule means uh, too, too much money chasing investments. In the short run, when everyone puts money in mattresses, you don't have enough money chasing investments. You have too much money sitting around. And when everyone wants to save, it leads actually to a reduction in national income in the short run. And this is sort of the essence of the Keynesian theory of recessions is when everyone runs to cash, that creates problems. That's why we need some sort of stimulus to make up for that demand. And that's really the, the, the heart of the Keynesian theory of the business cycle is recessions are caused by not enough demand, not enough money out there actively creating the demand for goods produced by laborers. In the paradox of thrift, everyone's got their money in the mattress. There's no money out there demanding new houses, new capital machines, and people lose their jobs. So when everyone tries to save so much, everyone loses, everyone income goes down, people lose their job. And that's when the government needs to step in through either monetary policy or probably in some cases, in the more stark cases, fiscal policy, the government just needs to start spending money. 
Pence during the Great uh, Great Recession of 2007, all the calls for a large large infrastructure budget to sort of prop up demand until we got over this sort of excess, this sort of surfeit of savings just sitting around doing nothing. So what are the particular negatives of this growth of dynastic wealth, not only just economic, but also you know, social, legal, and to our entire political system? What is the overall socioeconomic political issues that comes with a growth of dynastic wealth? Well, I mean, I, you know, obviously the history of feudalism is complicated. It was different in different times in different places. But, you know, feudalism is a, is a negative label. And it's a negative label because when we think of feudalism, the sort of things that prop up into our mind are, you know, it was a system in which there was a small group called the nobility. They owned most of the wealth in society, you know, in, in England, in feudal times. Almost all wealth was land and, and I guess to a lesser extent cattle. But that was essentially it. And when you have a society where a very small percent, the top 1%, the top 0.1%, however small a slice you take, when a small coterie of people owns practically everything, they call all the shots. It's hard to imagine a democracy surviving in a world where generation after generation, the same inner circle basically owns everything. They're going to end up running everything. That seems to be the natural consequence. I think I quote uh, Justice Brandeis for the proposition and said you can have you know, you can have concentrated wealth or you can have democracy, but you can't have both. So first and foremost, I mean, I think our most fundamental political institutions are on the line here. This is a country that was essentially founded uh, in a revolution against what was still largely a feudal state of England. It had a king and a hereditary nobility and primogenitor. Uh, and all those were all quintessentially anti-American things. And now America has more wealth inequality, more income inequality. We permit more dynastic wealth. Some countries don't even have trusts. You couldn't even try to do this in France, for instance. And so to me, it's like everything I learned in grade school about civics and the American way is under threat. Uh, when you have a small group of people who are going to control a hugely disproportionate share of wealth, their power in all domains, in political, informational, media, uh, is going to be outsized and we will no longer be a country that's sort of founded on a notion of fundamental equality. So your, your question is an important one and I could probably drone on for another 20 minutes about it, but I'll, I'll sort of stop there. But yeah, to me, the number one obvious, most fearsome threat posed by dynastic wealth is America could look more like 13th century England in a hundred years than like 20th century America. And so that's not the sort of country I want my children and grandchildren uh, to inhabit. So as a final question, what should people and policymakers be taking away from these uh, developments in whole? And what should they be taking away from your paper in particular? Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I guess it's hard to get passionate about the estate tax. But it is the one thing that's sort of standing in the way of true dynastic wealth, and it's sort of hanging on by, by a thread. And so I encourage everyone who's listening, uh, both themselves and to talk to all like-minded folks. And this should be a big issue. You know, it's not a huge amount of revenue every year, but it is an important institutional bulwark against dynastic wealth. 
And so first and foremost, in my view, we need to make it clear to our politicians that there is no reason to get rid of the estate tax. The estate tax serves an incredibly useful social purpose of preventing us from looking more like 13th century England than like 20th century America. Uh, the rule against perpetuities or a tax on perpetuities is, is an even harder sell politically than trying to get people excited about the estate tax. I mean, people hear the word perpetuities and I'm sure their eyes blaze over. Uh, but again, um, we need sort of these important legal rules standing in the way of dynastic wealth. And so, you know, I hold out hope that at least some state legislators, some states, will start to see the error of their ways, will decide that they really don't need to act as stooges for their banks and trusts and trying to attract this dynastic trust business that are larger, more important social purposes, and that they'll institute either a tax on perpetuities or second best solution or rule against perpetuities or some other mechanism basically to disallow sort of these feudal notions of continuing bloodlines uh, to exist in, in a republic, you know, was founded uh, squarely against such ideas of inherited title and wealth. All right. Well, thank you very much, Professor Kaitas, for coming on the podcast to talk about your excellent paper. Well, thank you very much, Luz, for having me. I enjoyed it. my royalty check to come and it still hasn't come yet it's about a year overdue I guess it's coming from the big royalty check in the sky I waited and the mailman never dropped it in my letterbox Check and sky Ooh, baby But you can Beat the tax man And me All at once 